Many students enter our colleges and universities with hopes for a better future, but depart often with a large burden of debt before achieving their goals. In this episode, we examine the importance of human connections in supporting students on their educational journey. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Peter Felton and Leo Lambert. Peter is the Executive Director of the Center for Engaged Learning, the Assistant Provost for Teaching and Learning, and a Professor of History at Elon University. Leo is a Professor of Education and President Emeritus, also of Elon University. Peter and Leo are co-authors of Relationship Rich Education, How Human Connections Drive Success in College, which was just released in late October of this year. They also were co-authors of The Undergraduate Experience, focusing institutions on what matters most. Welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. Great to be here. Today's teas are, Leo, are you drinking any tea? I am having a cup of coffee, but I was explaining to John that what I wish I were drinking was a chocolate milkshake from Rudy's Drive-In in Oswego, New York. One of my favorite places to go and watch a sunset. People who have never been to Oswego don't know that Oswego is one of the most beautiful places in the world to see a sunset. And I've had the privilege of doing that many times. So you're very lucky to be situated where you are. Definitely. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful at this time of year, for sure. Right on the Great Lakes. Just cold. Yes. Especially by Rudy's Drive-In. <laughs> <laughs> but it's less crowded, which makes it a little bit nicer. It's been a little less crowded this summer with COVID. From what I understand, I haven't been there, but they were doing takeout as soon as they could reopen again. It was. It was my daughter's favorite thing to do. How about you, Peter? Are you drinking tea? I have a big glass of water, but now I want a chocolate milkshake. And I'm drinking Lady Grey tea today. Oh, that's a switch up. I have Big Red Sun. Big Red <laughs> Sun tea and a big cup of it. And what is Red Sun tea? It is a black tea blend from Harney and Sons. Very good. I'm switching it up, John. So we've invited you here to talk about your new book, Relationship Rich Education. Could you tell us a bit about the origin of this project? Sure, John. I'm happy to do that. In 2016, Peter and I published another book with three friends, John Gardner and Betsy Barefoot, who have long been involved in the freshman year experience program. John really gave birth to that 40 years ago at the University of South Carolina. And they're prolific scholars and have written so many great things about undergraduate education, as you know. And also with Charles Schroeder, who's one of the deans of student affairs in this country. And the book was called The Undergraduate Experience, focusing institutions on what matters most. We tried to drill down to what really counts in undergraduate education. And we came up with six things. Learning matters, relationships matter, expectations matter, having high expectations of students, alignment matters, bringing all the parts and pieces of the university together in alignment, improvement matters, kind of a spirit or a culture of continuous improvement, and leadership matters. 
And we had an unusual amount of resonance and commentary on this idea of how important relationships were in the undergraduate experience, something we've known through research for more than four decades. And it inspired us to drill down more deeply and write a book on relationships. And that's what we have spent the last two years doing. As part of this process, you interviewed 385 students, faculty, and staff at 29 campuses. How did you pull all this together? What was the process of finding the subjects of the interviews and then the focus of the interviews? John, we started by surveying a fairly large number of higher ed leaders, administrators, faculty, staff around the country, and also foundations and people like that, asking them, where are there really good things happening in undergraduate education? And from that, we built this sort of set of programs and institutions that we thought were particularly interesting. We wanted a diverse set because American higher education is about 40% community college students. So we wanted to make sure we had strong community college representation, a lot of regional comprehensives, a few small liberal arts, a little bit of everything. So we identified all of those. And then it turns out people are nice and you write to them and say, we'd like to come to your campus for a couple of days and talk to your students and colleagues about their experiences. They say yes. And so back when you could actually travel, we spent a lot of time traveling, a couple of days on each campus and talking with small groups or individuals, asking them often about stories by starting to say, tell us about a relationship that's mattered a lot in your education or in your teaching or in your work here. And then using that to sort of spin out into broader conversations about identity and education and all sorts of different directions. So it was the most fun research I've ever done. And you weave those stories in throughout the book to illustrate it. And I think that makes a book much more effective by building on that narrative. As Leo said, John, we know the research is really clear that relationships matter. They matter for all sorts of things, from learning to belonging to motivation, and they matter even more for first-gen students and students of color. And so we knew that. We knew we didn't have to prove that. What we thought is the stories would help us all understand what that actually means in lived experience, maybe motivate, challenge, inspire all of us to do better. I think stories are such a powerful way to learn anything. It's the nice hook to get us all interested in reading the stories, I think, brings all this data to life, which is really exciting and I think incredibly helpful for faculty and the wider higher ed community. Well, thanks. I agree. I've got to say, the stories from students and the conversations with students about what's mattered in their education, if you've never done that, sit down with some students and ask them, who has mattered in your education and why? And just listen, and you'll be impressed and inspired about professors they talk about, but also, you know, people who work in coffee shops and the campus cop and moms and dads and just all sorts of people who do small and large things that really support and challenge students in powerful ways. In the introduction, you describe the changing composition of the student population and describe some of the challenges that are faced by many first-generation students today. What are some of those challenges that have been rising in significance? Well, I think when you think about who the American college student is in the general public consciousness, they probably think of someone who is 18 to 22 years old, going to school full-time on an ivy-covered campus, sitting on a lawn somewhere, and having the best four years of their lives, right? But that is increasingly not who the American college student is at all. First of all, 39% of American college students are at two-year colleges. 
And increasingly, they are people of color. They are working. They are balancing family responsibilities, taking care of children or aging parents. And increasingly, they're first generation and new Americans as well. So we really tried to focus on institutions and people in this book that represent this, what we call emerging new American majority college student. So some of the challenges are that these students obviously don't benefit oftentimes by this multi-generational mentoring that occurs almost by osmosis in a lot of families. And so you go off to college expecting that you might have an experience in study abroad or expecting that you might do research with professors. The, you know, the Academy, Anthony Jack has written a lot about the privileged poor and this hidden code in the Academy that is not hidden. It's quite obvious for people that know the rules of the road for higher education with families that have had generations of experience with colleges and universities. So that's a challenge. And I think we also saw very clearly that many of these students, I think, really feel pressured into careers, into needing to do well by their families. This is an incredible opportunity that I have, but I need to get a job. I need to make money. One of the women that we talked to, professor at Rutgers University, Newark, Sadia Abbas, speaks about how many of these students almost need permission to be intellectual. They're interested in philosophy and art history and English and are passionate and in many cases want to pursue these subjects, but oftentimes I think feel some pressure from families to pursue a degree in accounting or nursing because not that there's anything wrong with accounting or nursing, quite far from it, but simply because the pressure for the career dominates. One of the things that Peter and I wanted to be really clear about is that we also think it's important to recognize that these students bring a lot of assets and agency to college with them. They don't often recognize all the agency and all the assets all that they have, but they have accomplished important things in their lives. I mean, they have raised children. They have held down a job. They have sometimes overcome barrier after barrier after barrier to arrive at the gates of higher education. And so we were so inspired by talking to so many faculty who build those assets and build that agency into their curriculum and into their courses and help their students learn to tap into everything that they've accomplished and to be proud of that and to build on that. Many of these students speak multiple languages, are multicultural. And so I think it's important that we not think of them as disadvantaged students. They have significant advantages and bring a lot to their institutions and to their courses and to the curriculum if we can be creative about thinking about ways that we can tap into that as teachers. Following up on that, one of the things you suggest in your book is that we help students develop a sense of meaning and purpose to move beyond this careerist focus that an increasingly large share of students come in with. Why is that important? And what can we do to help students shift their focus to develop these other goals? It's a great question. And I think one of the things I'm most frustrated about with regard to the higher education enterprise at large these days is how often we talk to our students about college in very transactional terms. The number of credits that you need to get this major, what criteria you have to meet to get into this sorority, what hoops you have to get through. What do I have to do, John or Rebecca, to get a B in your class? 
Students are too often talked to about higher education in this transactional context. And what Peter and I are are passionate about is that all of us need to develop a vocabulary and a mindset to help students think about their experiences from a relational approach. And that includes especially addressing these big questions of meaning and purpose. We want students in college to be asking questions about who am I? What is my identity? What is my purpose? What talents do I have? And I love this big question that our friend Randy Bass at Georgetown, who we reference several times in the book, he asks this question about who are you becoming for other people, not just yourself? That's a big question to put before students. And questions like that are best asked and answered and reconsidered in conversations with people that we care about and that care about us, our mentors, our friends. That's one of the most important aspects of college. And so often it is given short shrift. Think about this time of year, how we're using advising appointments with students, getting them ready to register for classes next semester. And what do we too often focus on? Not the big questions, but the nitty gritty, the hurdles, the degree requirements. We need to be more mindful of making the shift to the relational away from the transactional. And can I add two things to Leo's really wise response? One is this doesn't have to be super complicated, and it doesn't have to require us all to become philosophers or counselors in some ways. I mean, there's simple questions. One of the best questions or best prompts we heard in this was someone who says to her students, tell me your story. It's an open invitation to the student to talk about what's important to them. We heard a lot of students say the most powerful question they get asked is, how are you? If someone really just follows it. And then the second thing that I want to say is that we need to recognize that what we do with students, we help them ask each other good questions too. So when I'm not sure my students always say the most profound things on their mind when they're talking to me, but what I'm hoping is sometimes the questions I ask get them talking to their friends to say, you know, Professor Felton kept asking me, like, what's my story? And they're trying to figure that out. What is my story or who am I for other people? And so they don't need to tell me, but we need to help seed these conversations and these questions about meaning and purpose. We interviewed a fellow by the name of Steve Grande, who's the director of service learning at James Madison University in Virginia. And he said something very profound, and that is that every day when he goes into work, he tries to raise his consciousness about how much his words matter to students and the value of five and 10 minute conversations with students that to him might seem not all that profound and important, but in the life of an undergraduate student are enormously important. You know that from your own experience. And it could be a conversation in the hallway or the stairwell or in your office or in a coffee shop where a student sees a gift that they might have that's been revealed to them in some new and different ways. They've discovered something new about themselves as a result of that conversation. We were speaking earlier before the podcast began about all the stress that faculty are under right now. And oh my goodness, you know, it just seems like we're just barreling through trying to hold body and soul together during this COVID crisis, but all the more important during these times to raise our consciousness about how even those short periods of time 
we are spending with students is the mortar that is holding the college experience together for our undergraduates. And I wish we could all adopt Steve's mantra about raising our consciousness with regard to the importance of this work really matters. I think those relationships and that power goes both ways. Right now, it's not just what's holding the undergraduates together. I think it's what's holding the faculty together. Amen. Yeah, definitely. My students are the best part of most of my days. Yeah, I've had some really great conversations with students this semester. I tend to have classes where I get to know students really well because I teach in a studio setting. But even more so now, even though I have less interaction with them, I feel like I know them in a really interesting and profound way, which is really exciting. And as you're talking about relationships, I'm thinking back to my own experience as a first-generation college student. And the things that I do remember are those relationships. I remember very little about individual classes or facts or whatever, right? But I remember certain exchanges that I had with a very limited number of people. But those limited number of people is what maybe even think about pursuing a higher degree. I wouldn't have considered it at all. That's not something that happened in my family. So I think it's really interesting. It's sounding true to me too. Those relationships is what I remember. And Rebecca, we heard versions of that. I mean, we could have told those stories ourselves too, but we heard that from students all over the country with all sorts of different backgrounds. And one of the big lessons I've taken from this is helping students see the capacities they have within them that they might not believe, they might not trust, they might not know. And so one of the gifts this book has given me, and I'm loving it this semester, is just every time I'm talking to my students, I try to say something good that they're doing. This part of your work was really strong. You have other things you need to work on, but this part was powerful. And just the reminder to point out those capacities and help students see that, you know, this is part of a developmental thing. So often students come to higher ed thinking it's about grades and performance. And it's not about learning and growth, right? And so they find something hard and they're embarrassed by it. It's like, no, the hard stuff is the good stuff. Let's focus there and say, you don't know how to do this now, but I bet you will be able to know how to do it. Maybe not this fall, maybe next spring, maybe next year, but let's get there. I really like where the conversation is going in terms of thinking about really practical things that faculty can do to help build these relationships. I know you have a whole chapter on just the classroom and the relationships that we build as faculty. We talk a little bit about some of the practices that you discovered in your interviews that really worked and had a big impact on students. Yeah, just a couple ideas to begin. And I want to reinforce Leo's point from Steve Grande that what we do matters a lot, but that everything doesn't have to come through us. And everything doesn't have to be one-on-one because it is not scalable. It is not possible for a faculty member to have a powerful long-term relationship with every one of their students. So recognizing just two different things. One is how we can say the same thing to all our students at once. One of the great stories we heard was from a writing center tutor at LaGuardia Community College who said when she was in her first semester writing course, the professor about halfway through the semester came into the class and said, you know, this is the time in the semester where one of my best students always just disappears. I don't know what it is if they feel like they're getting behind or they feel like they didn't do as well as they should have this last time. But I need to say to you, don't disappear. Come see me. You can get through this. And this student thought the professor was speaking to her and went and talked to the professor, ended up being successful, was a writing center tutor. And she said the thing that stunned her is how many students came in and said, this professor said this story and he was talking right to me. 
And so there's ways where we can speak in general to all our students to help them feel validated, feel their capacity, feel their struggles are common. And then the second thing is, how do we help students see each other as allies and assets in this work? And the good news is a lot of what we do with active learning is really constructive in that way. It puts students together, solving problems and everything. I found one thing in our research suggests this, is students turn out to be like other humans. And so encouraging them to do things like first introduce yourself to the people in the small group and say each other's names because they'll spend a whole semester working together on projects and sometimes go, what's his name again? And so don't let that happen, but put them into purposeful groups and encourage them to see each other as allies in this work. We were reminded constantly in the book that some of the interventions are very simple and very powerful. And the power to institute these practices can be in the hands of departments or small groups of faculty. They don't have to wait for an initiative from the provost. Sometimes I think when Peter and I have been invited to speak to entire groups of faculty, and I think the faculty are thinking, oh Lord, this is going to result in the provost wanting to create six new formalized mentoring programs at the institution. And that's not what we're trying to see happen at all. Quite the contrary. I want to give you an example of something simple and powerful to illustrate what I'm talking about here. At Oakton Community College, they have the Faculty Project for Student Persistence. It's a commitment on the part of faculty to get to know their students as well as they can, given that faculty have very heavy teaching loads. These are not small classes, but they're trying to create an institutional culture at Oakton that is relational, where students are going to feel that there is at least one person on campus that knows who I am and has shown an interest in me. So there are four things about the Persistence Project. Faculty that are in it commit to know their students' names. Secondly, they commit in the first couple of weeks of class to have a 15-minute private conversation with a student. Now, that's time-consuming. If you've got 30 students in your class, that's quite a bit of time. They commit sometime in the early, maybe say first three weeks of the course, to give students some graded feedback. And fourthly, they promise to uphold high expectations in the class. Not impossibly high expectations, but they want there to be a degree of challenge associated with these courses as well. They've had enormous success with this program. And the institution is trying to arrange things such that every student would have at least one of these classes during their first year, so that one of these faculty members is going to be an anchor person in their lives. We tell the story in a book about a former Marine who was in Professor Holly Graff's philosophy course, and he was concerned that she was going to stereotype him because he had been a Marine in his prior career and that she would think certain things about him. He wanted her to know, for instance, that he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And in their conversation, she learned that in all of the independent reading he had been doing in the Marines, he had read more philosophy than anyone else in the class. And he left her office after that brief conversation with an honors contract for the course. I mean, think about how that relationship between that learner and that professor changed as a result of one 15-minute conversation. He's known, he's inspired, professor's inspired by this incredible student that she has in her class, 
and the learning dynamic has changed because of a really simple faculty-led, faculty-inspired, faculty-developed program. You encourage the development of these networks, but you note that one barrier to that is the incentive systems that faculty face, that the rewards are not very well aligned to creating these types of networks with these types of interactions. What can be done to alter that? That's the easiest question you're going to ask us. So we wish we had a simple solution, but I think there's at least two parts that we need to think about individually and we need to think about collectively. So one thing is this has to be on the agenda of faculty senates and deans and things like this. But what we should be asking is, what is getting evaluated? Because often on many campuses, there's an immense amount of invisible labor that faculty and others do too. But since this is primarily about teaching, let's talk about faculty, where some of our faculty, often let's say faculty of color, LGBTQ faculty, do a lot of mentoring that is identity-based, that students come to them in particular, and they carry this heavy load apart and on top of everything else. And if that is invisible labor, but that is keeping students at the institution, that is helping students succeed. Sometimes it's helping students wrestle with the most important questions in their lives. So there's invisible labor. And even if it's not identity-based work, we know, you know, some people teach first-year students and have those students come back every semester just to say hi. There's all this kind of relational stuff that happens. So how do we find ways to actually capture what's happening that matters? And then how do we evaluate this? One of the questions that we've heard from a number of faculty is that institutions that are trying to reward faculty for doing, let's say, good mentoring. At institutions, we often know how to reward faculty and recognize faculty who have students who go on to graduate school, right? Students who go present at conferences. We can see that. So honor students, you know, check. It's really hard often to recognize the mentoring that's happening that helps someone graduate with a C average. And except that student's experience at the institution and their education is as important, perhaps that mentoring is more important in helping the C student graduate than it was help that honor student. And I mentor honor students. I love them. But to honor students who always knew she wanted to study history and is coming and working with me and look, she's doing great things. So we need to have evaluation systems that both capture the important work and let us recognize that success might look different for different people in different roles in this work and recognize that there's not one path forward on success. I would think also that there needs to be a formalization and a recognition of what constitutes faculty work. Early in my tenure as president of Elon, we took two years to develop a statement. The entire faculty worked on this called the faculty teacher scholar mentor model at Elon. And it's something that's kind of our guide. We were at a point of institutional change where the professional schools were undergoing accreditations and the role of scholarship was rising to have the business school be AACSB accredited and so forth. We we're adding lots of faculty. Faculty was growing and changing. And it was one of these moments where we really had to stop and think, we need to move very carefully here and think about what we value as an institution and how the model of faculty work at a place like Elon needs to be well-defined so that we're serving our students well, we're meeting our accreditation requirements, our faculty ambitions. 
and we were very clear that teaching mattered the most, that this was going to be 50% of what constituted the most important work in promotion and tenure criteria. But we differentiated mentoring from classroom teaching and other aspects of teaching to formalize the roles that faculty spend outside of the classroom in so many important ways, helping our students to develop, advising undergraduate research projects and supervising internships and traveling with our students all over the world and leading experiential learning programs of very high quality. And they're doing their scholarship on top of that. But I think this requires great intentionality. And without the intentionality, I think the relationships, the mentoring is never going to get factored into the work. Our buckets are so clear in most promotion and tenure processes at institutions I've been in in the past. There's a teaching bucket, and there's a scholarship bucket, and there's a service bucket. Where do relationships and mentoring fit in that model? They really don't. And so I think we have to be more creative and more intentional about redefining the nature of those buckets if we really want relationships to matter. And we argue in this book, they really do. So I think these are formal conversations that institutions, faculty, deans, provosts, boards of trustees need to have to fundamentally re-examine the importance of faculty spending time on these kinds of activities and being appropriately rewarded for it. I think along those same lines, there's a group of faculty, like part-time faculty, adjunct faculty, who play a really critical role here in relationships and maintaining those relationships that are widely overlooked, even more so than maybe tenure-track faculty. Oh, my goodness. We talked with the vice president for academic affairs at Patrick Henry Community College. And at a lot of our institutions, a lot of community colleges especially, you'll find 50% of the teaching load is shouldered by adjuncts. And they went through a tremendously important process there to re-examine the ways, and again, in their words, this was not rocket science, but it was very intentional, the ways they could support their faculty in achieving greater levels of success with their students. And it was the simplest of things like having spaces for them to meet with students before and after class and perhaps have a cup of coffee, access to a copying machine, and the basics. What the faculty wanted most was information. Full-time faculty had lots of information about all the support services that students could tap into if they were food insecure or needed clothing. Those services were available at the school, but oftentimes the adjunct professors were in the dark about where to turn to help their students in this regard. They intentionally paired full-time faculty with adjunct faculty so that there was a greater dialogue and a sense of cohesion between the two groups of faculty. So much can be done There are so many adjunct faculty that Peter and I met as a part of this process who are so committed to our students and our students' success. And they're doing this work with the scantest of support systems behind them and with a little bit of intentionality and creativity on institutions' part. We can do a lot more to undergird the student and faculty relationship that exists with adjuncts. 
And just to add one thing to what Leo said, when we talked to students, they told us powerful stories about what adjunct faculty had done to transform their lives. So students don't think, well, I'm just with Professor Felton, who's an adjunct, so it doesn't really matter. This is their professor. This is the person who's giving them feedback. This is the person who's inspiring and challenging them. And so we at institutions and we on faculty really need to support our adjunct colleagues because they are so powerful in students' educations. I think along those lines right now when students are facing a lot of remote learning still, online learning, online synchronous learning, and having less face-to-face communication in the classroom, those interactions with faculty may be even more important than they were before because they may not be interacting with some of the other folks on campus who may have been important when they were in a physical space. So what advice do you have during this time to help faculty facilitate some of the relationship building between students because they're so isolated right now? Yeah, Rebecca, this is really important. This is really hard. We don't have any simple solutions. One of the places we did visit, though, was Southern New Hampshire University in their online setting. And one of the people we interviewed there said something that just really has resonated with Leo and I, which is that this person said, my role for these students is to be the human in these courses, that so much is just remote and distant and asynchronous, and there needs to be a human presence in this. And that has to be me. So how can we be present for our students, even if it's asynchronous, right? How can we check in with them? How can we create opportunities for meaningful, formal, and informal interaction? So two small examples for you. One, and you've probably seen this with your colleagues, but I've been so impressed with some of my colleagues who are teaching classes in Zoom when they have synchronous moments. And the first few minutes of class, what always happens is when students come in, the professor says hello and sends them into small groups with questions that the students have to talk with each other about. These are purposeful questions connected to the work of the class, but they're the kinds of questions that are meant to engage conversation. And so students don't come into class and start by being silent and staring. They start by saying hello to the professor and then talking with a couple peers. And a second thing is just finding ways to emphasize with our students that their well-being is connected to their learning and their learning is connected to their well-being. And so if they can't If they can't do something right now, if their world is falling apart, we need to be able to be flexible enough and clear enough about what's most important in this. That doesn't mean we don't have standards. It doesn't mean we don't challenge our students to work through really difficult things. But recognizing that sometimes your class isn't the most important thing or the most urgent thing in a student's life right now. Often they do have challenges they don't want to talk to us about. And just offering a little grace and saying, okay, so you can't get this draft to me today. How's Monday? One thing I'm hoping that all of us are doing during these very challenging times is, at least in informal ways, being chroniclers of this experience, to have these moments of consciousness about what we are doing, what we are doing well during these times. And I'm of the strong opinion that the world is never going to go back to 2019. Higher education is never going to go back to 2019. And I think in the early days of the pandemic, we were under this illusion that, well, things will get back to normal. We're not going back to precisely the way things were before. Look at this conversation we're having here this afternoon and all the ways our teaching has shifted, the ways that I think higher ed is going to think about what constitutes the higher education experience 
differently, this blending of face-to-face and residential and experiential and online that could look quite different than the patterns that have always existed. Why do classes have to be 16 weeks long? I think there's going to be a lot of deconstruction ahead and reconstruction. What I'm hoping is that as we turn our attention to building something newer and better as we emerge from this, that we'll put relationships at the very center of what we intend to create. That's, I think, the big challenge before us. That's what really matters. I think Peter and I both believe that when students look back on their undergraduate experience, when the two of you, John and Rebecca, look back on your undergraduate experiences, probably what means the most to you are a set of people that helped you become who you are today, professors and peers and advisors and people that tapped you on the shoulder and helped you discover something about yourself or gave you confidence that you didn't know that you had. This is what needs to be prioritized. And I hope that whatever we build will be built around this idea. We always end with a question, what's next? Which is a very good question at this time. So two things I would like to say. One is that Again, the interviews we did, especially with students all over the country, were so inspiring that I'm just really personally committed to asking these kinds of questions of the students I encounter and asking them about their education and just making that part of my work. And then a second thing Leo and I have been talking about and we're eagerly brainstorming about is that recognizing that students need to be the primary actors in this creating their own relationship-rich environment, right? Institutions can do a lot, but just like we can't learn for them, we can't build webs of relationships for them. We can put them in these environments that are rich, but they need to act. So we're trying to think about ways that we can create resources and encouragement and support for all students to see themselves as actors in this kind of educational experience. So whether that's some sort of book or online resources or what, we don't know. But we're going to partner with some folks, including students around the country, to say, what can we do to really help students, especially first-gen students who don't understand the ways and the why force of higher ed, come in and not learn by the time they're seniors that I should have paid attention when that professor said, do you want to have a cup of coffee? I would add to that by saying there were times where Peter and I were struck, whether it was students at Brown or the University of Michigan or the University of Washington or LaGuardia Community College or Nevada State College, we were struck over and over again about the power of the question, how are you? I remember a phone conversation probably in an airport where we were talking back and forth to one another in our respective places in the country and having this dialogue about, should we call the book, How Are You? And then decided that's probably (laughs) not a smart idea. But that is such an important question. And students, and especially today during this COVID crisis, want to be heard. Students want to be heard. They're not necessarily looking for us to solve all their problems for them, but they want to be seen and they want to be heard and they want to be recognized. So I think a part of what's next for all of us is going back to this very basic idea of not losing sight of 
this enormous privilege that we have to be on college campuses and to take five or 10 minutes with students to listen generously after asking the question, how are you? It makes all the difference in the world everywhere. And in our busyness and in the craziness of COVID, it's really easy to forget that. But some days, it's the critical question that keeps a student in school. We were struck about how many students acknowledged that at one time or another in their career, again, including at the most prestigious institutions in the country, were one conversation away from leaving school. And how are you can be the gateway to keeping a student in school and successful and motivated and inspired. Very simple stuff. Thank you both for such a great conversation and a really powerful book. If you want some positive moments in your life, you can read some of the great stories in this book. (laughs) Our goal was to do justice to the stories people told us. Because if we could do that, we knew the book was going to be helpful and was going to be powerful because the stories were just an amazing gift. There's great work going on in higher education in this country. It is rich and deep and powerful and lively. And faculty are working so hard and students are working so hard. And so much of the chronicle coverage and the broader media coverage of higher education is so not on point in terms of, you know that, in describing what's really going on in the halls and quarters and classrooms of our institutions. And we were inspired by how many wonderful, wonderful things are happening all over the country. We have a great system of higher education in this country. It's something to be proud of, and it's changing lives every day, and we shouldn't take our eye off that fact either. Your book does a wonderful job refocusing our attention away from educational technology and back on the things that are most important, the relationships among the participants in the process. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.